0: Hello, this is David Rutledge with you and just a quick message letting you know that while Poetica won't be broadcast anymore, RN's new documentary series, Earshot, will continue to bring you poetry, features on the lives of poets and much more. Here's a taste of what's to come on Earshot and you can subscribe to this program now via the ABC radio app, the iTunes store or your Android podcasting app. For more information, visit the RN website, abc.net.au slash rn. Hello from David Rutledge and welcome once again to Earshot, RN's flagship documentary series on air, online and on your mobile device anytime. Welcome to the program. Today is the day for arts and culture on Earshot and we're going to be spending some time with New Zealand performance poet Tusiata Avia. Tusiata Avia is both from the Paolangi or white community of the South Island city of Christchurch. Her mother's side of the family goes all the way back to the first white settlement and she's from the Samoan community. Her stuntman father was part of the first Samoan immigration wave of the 1950s. Tusiata grew up as a mixed-race kid in a very conservative Christchurch of the 1970s and 80s. Well, today we're hearing a selection from Tusiata's two published collections of poetry, Wild Dogs Under My Skirt, a series of poems around family characters, and Blood Clot, which tells her version of the story of the Samoan goddess of war, Nafanua. The poetry is pointed, it's spare and it's quite visceral. It doesn't shy away either from violence or sexuality, so you won't be surprised to hear a bit of strong language and sexual references. But while the poetry is uncompromising, it's also compassionate and very moving. Gretchen Miller talked to Tusiata and asked her what it's like to write poetry in an ambivalent space between two cultures.
1: I guess I kind of live in that ambivalent space and it's something when I was younger that I used to find really difficult because I guess I felt I had to live in one space or the other, either in the white New Zealand Balangi world or the Samoan one. But I've come to realise that of course I belong to both and I belong to neither in a way and Because of this position that I find myself in, it does kind of make me a bit of an outsider. And that I have a foot in each world, but I'm a little outside of each world as well. So it gives me a good perspective, I think.
2: That's the perfect place for a writer to be in lots of ways, isn't it? It is. The observational voice. Although there's a melancholy, I think, to that positioning too. Oh, definitely. I was very tortured about it when I was
1: younger because when I was a teenager, I kind of actively didn't want to be Samoan. And I tried very hard to fit into, you know, this kind of white New Zealand culture. And that didn't really work so well. And then I did a complete about-face when I was 20 and I moved to Samoa. And that was my bid to kind of find myself as a Samoan. And of course... Over there, I felt even more that I didn't fit there either. So they've been important experiences and they've kind of taught me that in a way I don't belong to either completely. And I guess, yes, there is there is some kind of sadness and melancholy that comes with that. Tell me if you've ever been a before My first time in Samoa. Our passport photos. Mine, purple lipstick. My sister's thin, thin eyebrows like bad surprises. (laughs) The heat, of course. That was the first thing. And the smell, wet, like semen. They picked us up from the airport in a truck. We sat, wind cooling our sweat, and watched houses with no walls pass by. We looked in at pyramids of tinned corned beef stacked on shelves. Hey, what are they? Shops, they said. We scratched in the village. Too hot stink we hated going to the toilet our legs bled. If you could choose would you rather stay here for a whole year or sleep with Mr. Muldoon Having a party. <laughs> up here. Tusitala Hotel Bar, New Year's Eve. Ten gin and lemonades puked up in the potted palms, unconscious on a deck chair, while our cousin tried to get into my sister's pants.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. What about this one then? Would you rather stay here for six months or marry a Samoan? When did your poetic voice make itself known? Well, actually, I started writing poems when I was about 10, but I shut that down quite quickly when I was about 15 because I became really aware that girls like me, that is, brown girls from Christchurch, don't become poets. So I didn't come back to poetry until I was in my 30s.
2: What strikes me about what you say there is with all of those influences, your poetry could be an angry poetry. And while I think it's a very powerful poetry, I think there's a great deal of compassion in it as well. There's anger, but it's not of the limbs flailing variety.
1: Mm, Maybe that was a good thing to come to poetry later. I may have been more arms flailing as a younger poet. Ole B. Tao tao. A is for Afakasi. A is for Afakasi child left at the crossroads. Who will save her from the snakes? Who will save her from the darkness? A. E. A e is for Elena. Elena is my auntie's name. I call her auntie. E, Sunga. You don't know nothing. Hey, my pee, you still beast in a bed. I have to listen to her because I am young and don't know about life. E, E is for Ipuki. Tsunga, aloe fail Ipuki. Yawning, I shuffle off to the kitchen to make sweet tea and pancake. I bow my back past the visitor the best cups from the cabinet clinking, clinking. The visitor admires auntie's white plastic doilies and watches me hungrily. Ō. Oh. Ō oh is for Ōla. Ō oh is for Ōla. The woman who gave me life is a Baumuku living somewhere in Apia. My father was a Balangi. No one knows him. I should be grateful to be alive, to have a good life, to live in Yusila. I should be grateful. Ooh, U is for ulu. Auntie says, don't leave my hair out. Tie it in a knot and don't comb my hair at night time. Eh, if you comb your hair at night time, bad things will happen. The Iku will come and get you. Fa. Fa, is for faithful. Our minister holds his palms up to the congregation. Lomato tama olelangi, save us from the sins of the flesh. They are pink like spam. Nga for Ngata Nga is for Ngata who slips under our door and winds himself around my legs and squeezes and squeezes La La is for La La is for La Opele who will save me from snakes and Moikolo He will come like Jesus He will come like the rock. He will save me from the baddies. More. More is for Moikolo. More is for Moikolo, who slips his hard hand under my lover lover. Auntie snores, he breathes and slides his finger up. I watch the darkness. No, no is for Nusila. I am very lucky. I can go to the good school. I can get the good education and the good job and help my family. I am very lucky. P, P is for Penty. I hide them under the bed. Auntie is still sleeping. I lie down and match my breath to hers. Sa. Sa is for slut. I know what it means. It means pa'umuku, like my mother. T, T is for tenelele. T is for tenelele, good girl. And T is for teneleanga, bad girl. V. V is for virgin. Mary was a virgin, and God was her husband. But Joseph was her husband, and Jesus was her baby. But Jesus is God. Hair Hair is for Herod. Hair is for Herod, who tried to kill the Lord, who washed away our sins. I washed my panty in the shower. I wash it with the pulu. I wash it with the soap. Where did all the blood come from? Ka. Ka is for Kilikiti. Ka is for Kilikiti at the park. The whole alkalavol, the whole church is there. Auntie yells and yells at me. Run, run. I have the ball, but I can't run. My pipi hurts. Raw Raw is for the rock. The rock picks up the baddie and holds him over his head. I watch and wait for the baddie's head
2: to break. This piece has recurring characters who who come back in other poems of yours. The rock, for example. What was he? Tell me about
1: him. Well, the
2: rock is actually
1: a guy called Dwayne Johnson, and he is someone African American, and he is a WWF wrestler, and he is really kind of highly looked up to someone's Tend to really claim him as our own. And he has a really close association and pride in his Samoan culture. And I guess for the little girl in this poem, he is kind of her saviour. He's the one that can save her from this horrible situation that she's in.
2: And Auntie. The thing about Auntie is that she's so close to what's going on. Tell me about the Auntie figure. Yeah, she's
1: just a nasty piece of work, basically. She's really modelled after so many aunties. She's a bit of a stereotype, but I'm afraid to say that I do know aunties like this who are just quite bitter and mean. They have their own backstory of disappointment and heartbreak, but the thing about this auntie is that she really takes it out on the children and she's violent and cruel.
2: And the other thing about the auntie, I suppose, that it could be a literal auntie, or is it also just a term for a um, an older woman who's close to a family or connected in some way?
1: But I guess really in Samoan culture, it doesn't actually matter. Those kind of relationships, they're not about how closely related you are in actual fact, because ainga or extended family is just the same as your nuclear family. Three reasons for sleeping with a white man. Tussie. I thought it would be like a border crossing. I slept with him and dreamt I was sleeping with him and waking in a room full of children wearing European shoes. Lua. I thought he might rub off on me. I slept with him and dreamt he was calling me his Polynesian princess. On the wall, the velvet maiden turns a green shoulder, repositions her hibiscus and smiles. Tolu. I thought, eh, what the hell, and opened my legs, not my eyes. I dreamed I was leaving his house, and all my family was standing outside. My cousin married to her American pilot, my mother, my brother looking like a Māori. I kissed them all. They kissed me back, even my brother. I asked them what they were doing. They asked me, Sunga, what are you doing?
2: It's a great poem. Tell me about the family's question. It is a funny thing, because
1: it is that, on one hand, being with a white man has status, but on the other hand, what the hell do you think you're doing sleeping with a white man? But it's also being a slut. Like, what do you think you're
2: doing just sleeping
1: with someone and a white man into the bargain?
2: Talk about the sexuality that brims over in your writing. I almost wonder if you're sometimes surprised by that voice that makes itself known. Yeah, I guess part of that is because, you
1: know, I've always felt that sense of suppression, I suppose. And part of that is, I don't know, being a, a Samoan girl and Samoan woman, there are a lot of things that are taboo and you are expected to be a good girl. And... um God knows I've tried, but I'm just
2: deeply not. So there's always been that tension. There's a lot of violence. There's no getting away from the violence in your poems. It's shocking. But what I find interesting is how you observe the violence, even if you're writing in the voice of the violated. It's almost as if the speaker is simultaneously experiencing it and is outside themselves watching. You know, I have to take that position.
1: It would be no good to be arms flailing. What kind of comes to mind is when I was writing my first book, I wrote quite a lot of it in Samoa. And, you know, I just had these examples of violence all around me because I was with my family. And that's how we roll, you know. So I was really writing to something. It was my way of being able to have a voice, even if no one else could hear it at the time. But it's something I feel really strongly about, particularly violence towards children, which unfortunately is really prevalent in so many Samoan families. Brother. I tell my brother about the boy at school. I make him tickle my back, and when he stops, I tell him about the boy at school who can do it the best in the world. My brother and I are Siamese twins. I graft him to me, his pyjama holes to my buttons, and we sleep face to face. When they try to lift me out, I keep my eyes shut. My mother has to call for help. The surgeon is delayed till morning. Dad's army. When Grandpa comes on Thursdays, when they are at counselling, he watches Dad's army. My brother and I eat pancakes. I tell him how stupid he is, how much I hate him, and how I have hollowed out little caverns in the pancakes and filled them with ants. at 7pm on Wednesday night when the love boat is on. They ask me who I think should get the house. I make my brother an ice cream sundae with secret passages for the resistance to hide. I fill them with curry and chilli and shoe polish. My brother goes missing. I check Front yard, backyard, park, neighbours, wardrobes, bathroom, toilet, washhouse, I know deep down he is dead and I am a bad person. I even ring my mother at Weight Watchers. He turns up in the warming cupboard. My brother does not know what a magistrate is. We go to the Muppet movie and then ice castles and then Bambi again. My brother eats too many ice castles and falls asleep. We walk back to the courthouse which is by the tea rooms and I eat a custard square. My brother goes next door. The girlfriend comes round and won't go away and threatens to cut her wrists with the windows or mayonnaise jars. I tell my brother to go next door and stay there. I tell her to go ahead and kill herself, but first get in the taxi, just get in the taxi. My brother lives in a student flat. Mum gives him grandpa's lounge suite, who's dead now. Blue, hard, clean. My brother sits scraping out a bong, eating pizzas, or most likely McDonald's because that's where he works. And we sit getting stoned and having something in common. The day we meet our other brother. At Bishopdale Shopping Mall, we all look the same, but he looks like our father and tells us his life is fine as if we might be robbers who will break into his house and remove everything he has. I tell my brother about my abortion. He doesn't say anything, but later when we are at a bar, he leans over and says to the guy who was talking to me, are you trying to chat out my sister? I relish it for years, my sister. I go to a psychic about my brother. I ask why he doesn't love me anymore. He says, it's not about you. It's not about you. I feel like Mary Magdalene. I take my friend round to my brothers. I'm nervous about seeing him on my own, but he's hungover and gentle, and shows us the box of ashes. His wife gets home with a new jacket. She puts the box back on the stand. So you've shown them our son, she says, and rips off all the buttons.
2: That poem is another autobiographical one because it speaks of that fantastic ambivalence, that powerful love, that slight anxiety, that not really knowing this person who at the same time you're so deeply tied to. Tell me a little bit about that poem. It is very
1: autobiographical. I don't really make anything up here. It's pretty much about, you know, little vignettes of my relationship with my brother and kind of how sad it is that he's one of the people that I love most in the world, but we have a kind of difficult relationship. And thinking back on how things were when we were children, particularly around my parents' splitting and how I was a bit of a mean older sister sometimes. I guess we all do that, you know, we all look back and wish we hadn't done things. But yeah, it is just that kind of looking back with kind of sadness, I guess and how our relationship has been.
2: Before we talk about your collection Blood Clot, which is about Nafanua, there's something else present in your poetry, which is a sense of a larger power, I think. Not the Christian God, because that God mostly gets short shrift in your writing, but more ancient gods. And there's a sense that your characters, if not actually gods and goddesses themselves, are playing out ancient stories according to the whim of these figures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started writing Blood Clot with the old stories in mind. So, the main character is Nafanua, who is the Samoan goddess of war, and she's a really important figure in Samoan history and mythology. But of course, it morphs over the course of the book into actually becoming me, and I draw on a lot of the old Samoan myths and legends. So they're always present there. And unlike Greek legends, where everyone has that knowledge of them so can pick up the references, I guess not so many people have that knowledge of, of the Samoan myths and legends to pick the references up, but they're actually there all the time.
2: So tell me about blood clot in Nafanua.
1: Nafanua was born from a clot of blood. It can be translated as being a miscarriage or an abortion. Um, But anyway, this clot of blood was buried in the earth and she grew out of the earth and became this goddess. And she was the daughter of the king of the underworld and things were going on in in Samoa. Samoans were being enslaved and they called to her for help. So she left the underworld and rode across the ocean with these four magic battle clubs that I name in the next poem and um, basically fought for the people of Samoa for their freedom that's the old story where I take her in the book is, is after that then she proceeds to travel around the world and as the book goes on she, she becomes less and less the goddess and more and more the, the human being Waiting for Nafanua. This is what she holds in her hand. Uli masao, fa'a uli uli to, tafe silafai, fa'a mate like babies, like the cup. Here is what she does with her feet, left over right, like the old people do, her head behind the sun. This is what she does with her arms, washes them in blood up to her armpits, up to her shoulders. Red frangipanes are not flowers, they are birds, pieces of birds washed in blood left to dry. That is what they are. This is how she holds her hands, the footprints of moor, the four stars in the sky, the sharpest corners to cut the insides of our thighs, the insides of our mouths. This is how to hold the cup, lo avalia. This is where the tānoa will go. This is how she disembowels us, pounds our insides for the other. Take it, say the words, pour a little out to her. Forget your God. He is no longer with us. He will be made to walk the street backwards and climb the trees upside down. Nafanua explains her pedigree. It's true. My father is an eel, half-eel. No one said anything about his tupuanga oleainga, and no one ever asked. My family is fucked. I mean really fucked. My father ate my uncles and my aunties. My mother was a Siamese twin. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but her sister took both halves of the heart my mother married her uncle which makes me my own niece and half half eel and half half twin and my sister she just hates me nafanua watches the old white men Their scalps are red and the marks on them are not freckles, they are dark, dying pieces. Bits of food stuck in the corners of their mouths and they look like babies. She wants to wipe the bits away as gently as she would for small children, but of course she can't and it hurts her to see them fragile like this, in their blue blazers with gold buttons, and their earlobes like thinned-out jelly. She remembers being thirteen, in a mall, at an ice cream shop, and there was a man with a bushy grey beard. He stood there with ice cream in his beard, and down his arm to his elbow, and his trousers were wet through with piss, it was the first time she realised. It was the first time it
2: made her cry. There's a real empathy in this poem. Old white men, the possibly the most despised group in Western culture, if you don't count invisible old white women, perhaps. <laughs> and Nafanua looks at them and feels empathy for these unattractive, emasculated people at the end of their lives. Tell me about where that poem came from. It actually
1: came from a couple of things. One was watching an old man, and in fact there wasn't really anything to feel sorry about because he's actually quite a high-profile person in this country, but there was just something very heartbreaking about him in that moment. And then remembering something that I'd seen as a teenager. This man, a great big man with a beard and eating an ice cream and the ice cream melting and running down his arms and he'd wet his pants. And um, I just remember watching him and wanting to cry. I just felt so sorry for him. I really affected seeing this great big grown man just like a child
2: we might leave Nafanua behind and ask you what you're working on now and what threads you're following at the moment. I found that I've kind of moved away from
1: the kind of character poems that I did in Wild Dogs Under My Skirt. I've been writing some kind of confessional kind of stuff, more just in my own voice and more about issues, I guess, that I feel strongly about. So I wrote a series of poems on Gaza for a performance, and the next poem is one of those. I can't write a poem about Gaza. I can't write a poem about Gaza because I cannot eat a whole desert. I can't write a poem about Gaza because I cannot go to bed with the stiff little babies and the bodies of children. There is no room for their little lost limbs, the disembodied arms yanked off like parts in a doll hospital. I can't write a poem about Gaza because if I speak up for the bodies of babies, for the pieces of children, For the women pulling out their own eyes, you will call me anti-Semitic and I must allow the blood of thousands to absolve me. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because my fury and my grief will rise up out of my chest like a missile plotted on a computer in Tel Aviv. It will track me, pinpoint me, and in a perfect arc, it will wind down out of the surgical sky, into the top of my head and implode me. I can't write a poem about Gaza because Israel has a right to protect itself. Israel has a right to protect itself. Israel has a right to protect itself. Israel has a right to protect itself, Israel has a right to protect itself, Israel has a right to protect itself, and Gaza does not. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because behind every human shield is another human shield and another human shield and another human shield and another human shield and another human shield and, and behind that human shield, is a human. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because it's complicated, so complicated, very, very complicated. So I cannot write a poem about Gaza until I finish a PhD in Middle Eastern politics and the Holocaust, until I am reborn a Jew and live under the Iron Dome myself. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because Tamar in Tel Aviv has got to get to the supermarket and the garden centre before the next siren. She's putting plants in their bomb shelter and the kids' favourite toys and treats to make it less depressing. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because Fatima in Gaza City has 58 seconds to evacuate her house with her babies before the missile strikes, and the only way out is the sea. She has seen pictures on TV of babies thrown into swimming pools and swimming instinctively. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because there is an impenetrable iron dome that covers the entire state. It covers every heart and every mind, except for the few that line up and demand to be imprisoned. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because of my friends, Tamar, Shira, Yael, Mikau, Noya, David, Yair, and Tel Aviv, and Nazareth, and Beersheba because every time I point to the blood-soaked, I upset them, offend them, anger them, betray them, let them go. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because of my friend, Ibrahim, and his three exploded daughters and one exploded niece, filleted across his living room can't write a poem about Gaza because I can do the maths. If 2,168 dead Palestinians divided by 69 dead Israelis equals, find the true value of one Palestinian.
0: You've been listening to New Zealand performance poet Tusiata Avia with her poem Gaza, talking with producer Gretchen Miller. The sound designer was Russell Stapleton and Tusiata is published by Victoria University Press. And on our end, you're listening to Earshot.